0: Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. In 1959, something was created that would haunt Y2K and that still underpins some of our modern critical infrastructure. That was the dawn of COBOL. 1959 also brought us something quite different yet similarly significant to our modern society. That was the birth of Barbie. And where COBOL was inspired by the work of a visionary like Grace Hopper, it wasn't until 2010 that Barbie became a computer engineer. She did at least have dual monitors and a tuxed penguin. But this weekend's Barbie movie delivered heart, hilarity, and great dance numbers, along with a message that, like with COBOL, women have been part of computing from its beginning, and everyone should be aware of and take down the barriers that would exclude them from or stereotype them in this industry. Which means this week we chat with Kristen Bell from GuidePoint about navigating the complexities of AppSec and development so AppSec and dev teams alike can understand the consequences of what they're doing. In the new segment, which is coming up next, RCE and SSH forwarding CTFs and bug bounties, Nodes VM2 bids adieu, NPM packaging implications, a bad build, and more. Wear some pink and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools and techniques to understand DevOps, applications, and the cloud. Your trusted source for the latest AppSec news, it's time for Application Security Weekly. Your organization is building and updating business-critical web applications faster than ever. And with so much pressure to move fast, you may find yourself making trade-offs between innovation and security. Now you can build fast without sacrificing security with Invicti, the zero-noise application security platform that helps your dev, sec, and ops teams work together to secure every website, web app, and API. With unparalleled accuracy, coverage, and automation, Invicti scales like no other AppSec solution. Invicti. AppSec with zero noise. Visit securityweekly.com slash Invicti. Imperva is the comprehensive digital security leader on a mission to help organizations protect their data and all paths to it. Only Imperva protects all digital experiences from business logic to APIs, microservices, the data layer, and from vulnerable legacy environments to cloud-first organizations. With an integrated approach combining network, application, and data security, Imperva protects companies ranging from cloud-native startups to global multinationals with hybrid infrastructure. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web app applications at securityweekly.com slash imperva. This is episode 248, recorded July 24th, 2023. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with just John Kinsella. Hello, John. Checking. I am
1: unmuted. Hey, Mike,
0: how are you <laughs> I'm doing? Uh, I'm doing very well, and I Welcome want to back. give you uh, a special shout out for covering episode 247 as well. That was fun to listen to, and I uh, absolutely love the a bit of a goofy intro. Uh, so, Everyone has to go back and listen if you don't get my my subtle nod there to uh, John's take on that. Uh, One other announcement, join us at an upcoming official cybersecurity summit in a city near you. This series of one day invitation only executive level conferences are designed to educate senior cyber professionals on the latest threat landscape. We're pleased to offer our listeners $100 off admission when you register with code SECWEEK23. Visit securityweekly.com slash cybersecurity summit to learn more and register today. And this makes it easy for us, John. We're uh, doing something a little bit different today. We're starting off with the news. Then we'll dive into our interview segment with Kristen. And in the news, there's all kinds of fun things. Now, I thought I was going to lead off with uh, so, some 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 fun research from Qualys on SSH agent forwarding. But uh, you took us right into space. So why don't we start at, uh, l- let's go in orbit and then see how we can land this thing at the end of, uh, in half an hour.
1: Definitely. Okay, Major Tom. Um yeah, this, this this is a good one. Um, and I know we say this a lot, but um, this was a fun uh, article. It's actually a um, paper written by some researchers. I think they're all in Germany. I know they're all in Europe. Um, CSM.E email addresses. so I think they're all Germany. But um, they start with the uh, idea of, you know, we look around. We don't see a lot of um, academic research into the security of satellites. Um, and historically, these things have been they have been hard for us meteor mortals down here on, on planet Earth to, to try and attack or get access to these things up in space. Um, you know, we, we've seen some ham radio guys will be able to either um, interface with them or more commonly listen to them. And you'll see articles out there like, you know, how to download imagery from Russian spy satellites and things like that. Um, but what's interesting here, what sort of allowed them to start going down this path is it's so, again, for those of us on the ground, Usually the way to communicate with the satellites through what's called a ground station, Uh, up to say before five years ago, those things were not really cheap for an individual to go and purchase and put in your backyard. Um, You're starting to see now with things like uh, um, SpaceX's, uh, I'm happy to say, I don't remember the name of it, but anyways, their their thing where they're going to pollute us with a bunch of satellites, sorry guys. Um, You can now start getting from them and from others, these base stations that are these ground stations at a lower cost. And if you don't want to go that way, you can rent the things from either AWS or Azure. So they started looking at these different paths of how do you get communication to these things. And then also they were able to work with some of the um, folks who have launched some of the smaller spat satellites in Europe. So I'm talking a class of what's usually known as CubeSats. Um, I, I pondered getting one of these myself and I couldn't quite figure out a good reason to launch it. You can launch them for, <laughs> I think, between five to 10 grand. So it's, it's not like, you know, chump change, like I could pull, pull it out of my pocket, but still like, hey, I can have a satellite in space for you know, not that much money, but then what do you do with it? Uh, and the reason they get these CubeSats are so cheap is because they're running off commodity, really common software and hardware. You can probably start seeing where this is going. Um, the guys started building a lab to reproduce some of the firmware and, and hardware settings that they had there and then started digging through what they could find. Um, and what they found was unencrypted protocols, Sometimes no authentication, just all sorts of really bad things on these satellites. I think in one case, there was a software library they were seeing, which was, um, a- again, the number is so far back that it makes my head spin. I believe the library was over 10 years old. Um, that was common for these satellites. So th- this is just, you know, overall bad. But the the article, um, the <laughs> it's not a blog post, not an article, the white paper on this, um, which you can download for free does a really good job of sort of bringing people up to speed on some of the things I just talked about, some of the protocols, um, you know how these things fit together. It got some threat diagrams in there. It, it's a pretty good read um, in, in a uh, easily accessible way for, for those who might be not be looking at this stuff day in, day out, or even the IoT side of it day in, day out. So um, yeah, that, that's, that's my first for the week.
0: It, it is fun. I was trying to find the link because I think uh, this year DEF CON is also having another satellite village. Satellite Hacking Village. Cool. So if um, you don't have access to any of this information that John was describing or you or you don't have the, I don't know how much the a- AWS ground station is, but uh, as a service, but that could be another opportunity to, to check it out. So fun types of bringing to a, a very different type of, of hardware hacking for sure. Uh, there's another one that is um, related to satellites, at least I think signal analysis, uh, oscilloscopes. Now, I have an electrical engineering background. So in college, I actually used one of these that was, I don't think, web-connected at all at the time. It was a bit a bit dumber than this. But uh, these days, you can get RCE on an oscilloscope. Yes.
1: So um, with your EE background, you're in for a bit of a treat in this overall space, Mike, um, because things have really progressed uh, a ton. Um, in large port from a company called, uh, I, call, I call it RIGL. It might be RIGL, but um, R-I-G-O-L. And they have a, a large line of um, oscilloscopes out there, um, from pro down to, you know, um, it's not just oscill- oscilloscopes; they got bench um, power supplies and things like that as well. I have one of their scopes, um, but they, on the lower end, they're they're accessible for someone like me to get. But what's really neat about um, the a lot of their product line is they, um, well, a they're running Linux, um, and b they 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 leave them so that people can access them if they want to be able to get access in there. Um, and what that allows you to do on my home scope, I can go in and replace the license key on it, um, and have full access to a, um, a very, um, capable scope, uh, with, um, digital sampling and all sorts of great things on there. Uh, and you know, it's for me at home I go do that for free, right? I'm not, not making money off it. It's a hobby. If you're going to do that in a commercial environment, please go and, you know, get the licenses and, and help support the company like this. But, um, with that, uh, Mike. Also, another thing that they have on these things is yeah, there's web interfaces. There's Ethernet going into these things, so you can either do um, remote triggering and things like that. If you're doing some sort of IoT hacking, maybe as an example, or you just for some reason want to you know point and click your oscilloscope without actually using the screen. Uh, all that build up in this blog post, which I can't find by notes in our show notes. Um, the individual walks through again, sort of how do you download that firmware? Where do you get it? Like you know for an update on your on your scope um can you run that well can you unzip it can you run it locally how can you sort of build an environment where you can start poking and playing with it and he finds you can do this in qemu uh the our favorite emulator and virtualization system and he gets in there he starts walking through how would he go about looking for finding a vulnerability in the, the web interface which he does so he's able to find a remote code execution and um you know for for most of us that's just okay hey that's sort of neat i imagine if this is being used in a professional setting um, someone could use this for for malicious uh, intents in a, an R and D setting. Maybe sort of play with someone's results that they're working on for a product. So it has real world really consequences. But um, overall, the space is pretty neat.
0: It is, and it's also there. There's a speak, speaking of things that nostalgic. You know, to be able to hack this with a curl command, just and some semicolon separated for some as part of the the uh, RCE, the command execution is just ooh, that's that will be the the dead simple to use. One of my favorite <laughs> phrases. Um, I'm going to use, you've got some other fun stuff that you, you've nerd sniped me to use a, a fun phrase this, this, this week, but I want to take a moment to, to riff off of the CTF aspect of that and bring over another article that was possibly interesting, possibly not. Let's find out. But it was, um, Google says an Apple employee found a zero day but did not report it. Reading into the article, however, was really that this was part of a, there, there was a CTF, it so happened a apple employee like many others were participating in this ctf and the and the the, the researcher found a zero day in chromium exploited it um, collected some you know collected some points out of the, uh, the the ctf and then carried on now what was interesting is that i think about 2 weeks later uh, or t- 10 to 14 days the ctf organizers or one of the organizers said hey by the way, Chromium, I'm going to. I want to report this issue to you just because I'm not sure. This came up in our CTF, but I'm not sure if you you know about it. And uh, Chromium said, actually, we've looked. Not a dupe. We haven't heard this one. So, thank you for the report. Here's ten thousand dollars, and we're going to go and fix this. So, there's some interesting angles here in the sense of. Perhaps reporting relationships between CTFs and bug bounties, or just—I uh, don't think it's so much a Google versus Apple types of thing yeah. as the, the headline might imply, but da, more da, da. of what do you do with, uh, you know, h- h- how do you, how do we handle bug bounty programs, or how do you handle good incentivization so that someone who's good, <laughs> clearly at finding vulns, is incentivized to earn that 10k rather than like ah, that's just uh, that that's just pack- pocket money. It,
1: it it gives a, um, at least to me, it was an interesting um, view behind the screen of of these CTS, right? I, I know how this worked ahead of time already, but still, for those who don't, um, some of these higher-end, I'll say point winners in these competitions, they're not walking in cold and seeing if they can start hacking over yeah. a few hours, right? They're walking in with like a a treasure trove of things they've spent the last few months working on actually to see if they can find something that no one else finds or else be able to execute it first in the ctf so that's what happened in this case it looked like it was a researcher at apple um and they had done this beforehand but i'm it, we know how apple works for a lot of these large companies you know all sorts of secrecy and sign off and that type of thing so the fact that he was able to launch that use this, this vulnerability in a uh, ctf and, and get the points for it that's one thing but for him to be able to actually announce it and send it in as a thing, then he has to go and start jumping through manager hoops. Is what it is. Whatever. Right. So yeah, I, I to me the interesting aspect of this was besides just behind the scenes, Mike was that, um, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about how do you when when do you award someone? I think they were right in how they did this. I'm like, okay, well, this is the first person to send it in. Mm-hmm. But um, if if it luckily in this case, the sense I got lit from looking at things was that the, um, and you can actually see a lot of this, you can go through on the, um, uh, the bugs, which are linked in this article, the the trackers. There wasn't a lot of pushback from the original engineer who found it. I think if there had been, or at least maybe publicly, God knows what's going on behind the scenes. If there had been publicly, then it's like, it would have become a little more, uh, you know, I, th- I think they still made the right choice, but that would have been difficult or more difficult. But I, it's, is what it is. It's I leave the drama out of it. Yeah, it's it's just interesting to see how these things work and when do you pay someone who gets paid all that aspect of it and yeah. I'm glad they found it and did right thing.
0: Indeed, and I think it's been updated now to say that the uh, the ten k is going to be donated as well. Oh, but cool. um, I think it is as you're kind of alluding to there. There, there, there's the social dynamic of bug bounties mm-hmm. reporter versus researcher, um, finding dupes. There's competition within bug bounties themselves. So just always a good reminder of uh, curating a program requires more than just an analysis of triage of, is this a vuln or how bad is this vuln? Speaking of bad vulns and researchers though, Qualys is back to some um, very interesting deep dive shenanigans. They've got a a person or a team there that just loves reading through Linux, Unix code and and (laughs) must be, I don't know. (laughs) But uh, more patience than, than perhaps either of us. So, congratulations there. But uh, I'll, I'll predicate this with that it's a remote RCE in SSH agent 40. Now, this isn't the type of end of the world type of vulnerability because I think, as the write up says, you need to control the server. Uh, so, you know, that's it, whatever CVSS 4.0 score is right now, that's going to lower it a bit. But what was fun about this is. Once again, a great description of how they started to leverage the DL open command and some unexpected or some uh, edge case behaviors of several libraries on Ubuntu systems they just so happened to be using. I can't remember what Barbie computer engineer was using, but she did have Linux on her desktop. Um, but I think for me a takeaway, in addition to just a really fun Deep dive read, which I do encourage to, to to look through their their fuzzing, how they went through and did the exploit. Is that it? Also, maybe as a reminder to like perhaps fuzz or review or harden all of these other libraries that are completely unrelated to S- OpenSSH on these Linux systems to see do you know do they have these behaviors with a DL open or a DL close that have signal handlers that are use after free, callback functions that can be use after free, return from syscall us after free. They list a couple of these different issues. And I think that is kind of a neater thing that, yes, there's some OpenSSH fix here to do, but there's probably something like OpenSSF would be interested in and cleaning up the the entire environment of the Linux system. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a greater takeaway than just uh, really cool research into the SSH. Yeah, I
1: mean... As I was commenting on the last one, like you don't just walk into these CTFs, and I mean, it takes a lot of research. And I think a lot of our listeners know this, but I, I always like to say because it's like we'll occasionally in the industry we'll get lucky and we'll stumble over something. You know, we just happen to TCP sniff TCP dump the right thing. and go, oh hey, look, um, this was not uh-huh. that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 there's a lot of work going into this. Um, there, as you said, one correction. Um, uh, Bad vulnerability, good researcher. You said bad phones. And anyways, um, yeah, yeah. Th- these guys, you. <laughs> you know, these guys keep doing great stuff. <laughs> yes. um, I know, nitpicky. Um, I I don't know if I have much to add. It's, I, I think it's this one is it's it's good, but it's it's um, it's using enough of my brain just to sort of soak the whole thing up that they did. That um, where I go next, I'm like it. It it needs a little bit of the deep thought and sort of sitting back and thinking about it. I think you're right going down the path of. Um, OpenSSF or any org like that, sort of taking something like this and and how do you use it and leverage it and um, consume it? And I think not just for SSH itself and these libraries, but like take a step back and where can you use this type of, I mean, you're basically, on a few of the stories we're talking about today, we're giving either researchers or developers a a breadcrumb, if not literally how to and how to go through and and either repeat this research, which, hey, there's some good homework, but also how to, how do you do this like, okay, instead of doing this on OpenSSH, let's look at, um, I don't know, uh, the camera driver on the phone I'm using right now to record this, right? Maybe let's go and poke at that and see what you find out of it. And um, yeah, it's, it's, these are great reading, but also think about them. What can you do next?
0: So one of the things you could do next as a developer is give up. And um, this isn't necessarily a terrible thing. Actually, I, I, I like this approach. I think it's a, a healthy thing to do. But the, uh, the, the Node.js VM2, so this is basically a, um, a way to isolate and uh, allow list um, node apps to run. They basically said, let's, I, I do want to quote that, uh, we find ourselves facing an escape so complicated that fixing it seems impossible. And as they note, it's not just this one isolated issue. There's been a lot more issues and escapes, and it just looks like sustaining the project just isn't good. So, I, I like this. I, I mean, it's unfortunate to have to give up on a lot of work. They put in some, done some great work over the years, but. At least admit if we can't, you know, if we can't address the risk, let's actually do the right thing for our users. Let, let to, to quote one of my favorite movies, Tron. Let's fight for the users and do the right thing here. And also, they um, point out isolated VM. There is another package that uses some better primitives within the the, the Node ecosystem, and I think V eight, so that you can have the better actually secure environment. So I think this is just more that reminder. It's you know, deleting code. Removing lines, deleting packages are a great security step. And I wonder how easy this would be within an organization just to actually say, we're gonna stop using this package and then actually stop using the package. Because I think in the real world, there are deprecations or end of life that are announced on July 24th, 2023. And then that software is still used two to three years later.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it's a pretty incredible statement. You know, when you think about it, this is not something we see very often. Mm-mm. Um, Someone saying, <laughs> no, we can't fix that, Um, <laughs> right? It, it, and that's, kudos to them for actually saying that instead of trying to like, slap a Band-Aid on it. Right. Um, I, I guess taking a step back, thinking through, what does this mean for the average Node developer, if anything? Are they just going to wait for Node.js? I don't even know what version it is. The next version to come out, right? hopefully it has a better, is using isolated VM instead. Um. Yeah. It and I think actually uh, if for folks who click through to isolated VM, they also I mean, I, again something which we both love to see. There's really good documentation about what's going on here and um, you know, the thought process behind this and how they've done it. So um yeah, it it's a pretty refreshing step for the, the good. So um yeah, kudos on that. I mean that's again, trying to bring it back to our listeners. I seem to be doing that a lot this week. Um when do you make that decision on your own product or project? Hopefully not your product. Um, or library, like, how do you have that conversation with your your manager or your coworkers of like, let's be honest, we can't fix this. Right? right? It's one thing to do is an open source, but like how would you do that if like, you know, you have a product that has say a million dollars a year of revenue on it? That's not that much. And you're saying, We gotta no, no, no. So it's, you know, that that's again a good thing of like, what would you? do if you had to replace something core like this um
0: yeah yeah that that could be a a fun tabletop exercise throw that in there use that million dollar just as as a starting point as you say now i want to pick up one more npm article uh it's a little bit older and i think it's sort of building to an fcc article that you have i think Mm. would be a a nice segue here but this one uh, a blog post about the massive bug at the heart of the npm ecosystem and it's addressing what's what's I think most uh, simply called manifest confusion in the fact that in NPM, the package manifest is published independent of its tarball, meaning you can have version numbers that are, that are asserted within one file to be different from what actually exists within the tarball. And if we start, I'm gonna use the SBOM magic word here, so I'm not sure if we jazz hands that one just like we do ML and AI, but yeah, thank you, John. But um, you know we do need to be able to trust what the packages say they contain and the idea of bombs is that there's you know easy if we can trust them they're they're easier to inspect quicker to inspect but if we can't trust like manifest file then we have to go in and do all the scanning and that just becomes a scalability nightmare just a lot more cpu resources that aren't saving us time like they should be so this is just one of those areas that's kind of a Surprise, you might be vulnerable or not vulnerable depending on how your you know, SCA scanner is handling these NPM nuances.
1: Yeah. Uh, so first I have to say that's a phenomenal pun. Thank you for that one. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what to say here. It's, I, I like, I'm not sure what else to say here. I, I, I like that they're digging in and sort of putting a spotlight on this directly. Um, at the same time, I think this is sort of what we're talking through beginning of the year, end of last year of like, okay, we got an s What do you do with it now? Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, the, you know, it does come down like a little bit like you're saying of like, if your tool supports and parses and we'll do something with it. And that's presuming for some of these folks that they have a tool back to the satellite article. Mm-hmm. One of the things they were seeing was that on these smaller budget projects, which are using these smaller budget satellites, it ain't got no security team, right? So you know they're not using a security, uh, like, I don't know, I'm going to pick any off the top of my head, um, uh, SNCC, right? They're just mm-hmm. not using those tools. Um, and <laughs> Well, they probably are writing some of them in Node. So um, yeah, it, it's it. I, I like that they are highlighting this once again for us, but we, we need to see some sort of, um, I, I, I think if I was to sum it up, the manifests, or excuse me, the S-Bomb problem like this is putting all the, impetus onto the consumer that they're actually going to do something with it. And I'm not sure. It, it feels to me I'd really love to see a little more of the security actually handled by the the where the origination is coming from, or at least the the distribution. So um, I know it's easier said than done, but um, I'm going to
0: keep hoping. Keep hoping. And one of the takeaways from this article even said the the, the shift from the responsibility of there should be more server-side validation that the manifest and tarball match up rather than just rely on the client to assert that, Yeah. These probably match up. Just trust me and go with it. But uh, you mentioned the consumers and consumer responsibilities. FCC is out here to help you out, John. Yes. Uh, they're coming up with a US cyber trust mark, which the logo actually, the design actually looks kind of cool. I mean,
1: once you got the the logo, I mean, it's all downhill from there. Yeah, right? Downhill from that's that's the Yeah, it's easy. Part, you know. We will be starting pretty soon. Uh, security design, our design security <laughs> weekly for our listeners. Um, we'll talk about our favorite shade of, of Barbie pink. Um, yeah, so th- this is similar to what we've seen from um, UK um, as well mm-hmm. as um, Europe, as well as well. I th- let's just leave it those two. Um, what stood out here? A few things. Um, there's a pull quote on the article from The Verge. Um, thinks Energy Star, but for the security of smart devices. Uh, so I don't know about y'all. So um, to, to, for those outside the US, Energy Star is, is sort of a similar sort of labeling program we have here in the US. Uh, to you know, if you go and buy an appliance or a, um, a laptop, or really anything electrical, it sort of shows you, gives you some sort of stamp of like um, good, bad, whatever. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, quite honestly, that's all I know about it. I couldn't tell you what's a good energy start if i'm looking at a package i got no idea <laughs> um I know if we talk talk about like real estate buildings like um where some of this work if it has like a lead gold i know what that means like it's an efficient building but I couldn't tell you what energy star levels are so that's i think part of the problem around this you can come up with the labels but then do you i don't i don't even know if like on energy stars that literally have like different star numbers i have no idea and i see these things on probably on you know not just things i have purchased but I'm sure there's something in my house which still has that stupid sticker on it and I still couldn't tell you what it means. <laughs> so um, that's that's one side. On the other side, what I thought was really neat here, and I don't think I've seen this in in um, the other standards so far, is they make a distinction between the security of the device, which they want to have on the label, but also the security of the product. And by that, what they're referring to is the device is that little thing which you can hold in your hand, like the IoT, whatever it is. But the product is that thing doesn't exist by itself, right? It talks to the cloud or something else, or there's a Wi-Fi or, you know, Zigbee or whatever else, but the end to end security, they're actually also considering in there for something for people to be able to understand. I thought that was a, um, I hadn't seen pointed out like that before. And I thought that was pretty neat. But I don't know, Mike, if, if you had any thoughts on this.
0: They have, um, well, unlike Energy Star, they're going to throw um, some QR codes are expected to accompany this, which maybe be a little bit more helpful so you can at least put your camera at it and uh, cool. send so you a link like somewhere.
1: A, I can have an exactly. injection
0: attack on the product just by having someone look at it. I love that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. But I think um, in addition to that potential thread vector, what, what's nice is they also will um, basically, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Temp- time. Time in relative dimension in space. That um, th- 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 That link will tell you if the device is still certified. Simply because you know there are new zero days, new new patches may come out, new vulnerabilities may emerge, and so you may be trusted in July of this year, but one year from now it may no longer be trusted because uh, Qualys researchers have been have found another fun thing in the in the IoT, or some of our listeners have decided to play around with some of the devices and uh, oscilloscopes or downloading firmware. So I think that 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 time dimension I think is an, is a nice consideration. So that we don't just say, yeah, it was good once and it's good forever.
1: And on the other side of that time equation, uh, for our listeners who would love to get active in something like this, um, the FCC is just really sort of touching their feet in the waters on this. But also NIST has a National Institute of, Secure, of Standards and Technology has a working group around this. So maybe go get involved and like help them uh, scope out what this is actually going to look like once it hits the road
0: and let us know what's been interesting in there too. Um as, as a reminder too that it's good your time about that participation. I did mention CVSS 4.0. I think we've got one more week to provide feedback. I think that's it's open for uh uh industry feedback or uh community feedback until July 31st. But there's actually now John two other articles I want to bring in that um I need to test the waters here. I think they're Maybe not interesting, but I included them anyway. So let me tell you why. One, uh, speaking of... So you mentioned NIST. Here's CISA coming back. So we've got another, another fun government entity. They got a fact sheet for free tools for cloud environments, which headline, I think, is great. Free tools. It would be wonderful to have free tools for securing satellites. But then I looked at the tools and... It was sad trombone noises, and I was kind of like underwhelmed by their choices. And I think part of me is just, yes, tools do not make a cloud security strategy, but then the tools themselves don't strike me as well organized or described other than like, if you get hacked, here's some ways to help you with forensics. But ah, there just felt like there were some things missing there. So I think if, if I were going to say a call to action for our listeners, what tools would you throw on to this list? And even John, uh, maybe to put you on the spot, I know you just did some fun AWS uh, education on your own. Would you rely on just some AWS native tools or um, some other free tools that come across come, come to mind for you?
1: Uh, I definitely would not rely on... I'm sorry, did you say AWS free tools? You must be <laughs> new to Amazon. Free? Um, yeah, I turned on Security Hub on my home account. And... Blow oh, up? no, it wasn't Security Hub. Security Hub gave me a bit of a bill, but then I'm also playing with um, sending logs from... See, you got me talking about this. Uh, um, using uh, CloudWatch metrics to send logs and metrics from my home machines up into the cloud to see if I could like do like, a SIM type thing like that. Um, and I got a bill from that too. And um, I have a very small environment, but neither people want to see those bills either. So um, <laughs> plenty of open source tools out there. Which somehow didn't make this list. Uh, um, shout out to the Goose folks in the Kubernetes crowd, Kubernetes security crowd. They'll like to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what happened? Um, I I'm not I'm yeah that, I think that that's my my two word takeaway from this one, Mike. Is, <laughs> this is a I, a four page yeah. PDF that lists like four open source. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure what happened there. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I would say, and you know where this came from, right? There was a, a, a government group out there that said like, you have to tell us what tools to use or else we can't figure out because um, we want to spend money or whatever reason why. Yeah. So they threw something together. and But this is, please folks go and help them with this. Um, we should be able to close our eyes through a rock and, and think about, or come up with the name of at least two or three different open source security tools.
0: Yeah, I think that what happened is the the perfect summary, which I think we should throw that onto your uh, T-shirt list too. I love that. Is it AppSec logo, AppSec theme? Um, There's another article, Google introduced their their AI red team, the ethical hackers making AI safer. They talked about some, uh, I think they had six different model attacks, some data security risks, some... uh, you know, And they're talking about prompt attacks, backdooring the model, adversarial examples, data poisoning, exfiltration. So I'm just kind of rattling off real quick because it, it was mostly just a nomenclature of types of attacks. And what was interesting to me is we covered the AI security and privacy guide from OWASP a couple months ago. And there was a little bit of overlap, but also some gaps. And um, I think actually that the the OWASP guide has a little bit more meat to it. And uh, we've also covered some research, uh, some some documentation from um trail of bits as well so it's nice to see the community appsec call color products security what have you uh, looking at this but it still feels early days that uh, we're going to be iterating on those OWASP guides thankfully not a top 10 list um in, in this area so it, I, I think this one was again there wasn't too much meat there but i at least wanted to throw it on the table and see what how we could uh, dissect it how it gets attacked um yeah i think
1: one of the thoughts i have around this was is this is this page this post aims towards us or more towards mm. the 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 business types, which keep going me streaming learning ai i saw someone <laughs> i doubt this is a listener um i don't think i'm calling someone out to say this on air um i saw a tesla this week with a license plate of ai car i'm just gonna leave that at that um oh, but uh yeah, I think on the, the positive side, um, what do you think, Mike? I think prompt attacks is gonna be our new sort of category of, of vulnerabilities um, for, for, that we'll talk, be talking about at the end of 2023.
0: I think so, and hopefully they'll at least be entertaining and, indes- and interesting. Um, but in, yeah, and I think I think the one thing I wanna to add to that too is that a lot of this is very focused on the data model, but not how the application is being used. Meaning is this AI being used in a customer support but you could have prompt injection, as you said, prompt attacks that could cause the customer support to start spewing horrible, obscene remarks. You know, 4chan from computing for, for <laughs> customer support type of thing. So there, there, there will be the, these types of attacks. And we will keep our eyes out. So listeners, do keep us informed. Let us know if there's something else interesting and, and, and fun that's coming up. now. We got a couple more that maybe do a whirlwind and end on one of your articles, John, because it's fun. Uh, Orca Security, they have bad build. Uh, Another supply chain attack in Google Cloud Build Service. I think my takeaway from this one is that IAM is hard, IAM is complex, and uh, if you leak a little bit, then there's some privilege escalation that can be taken advantage of and bad things can happen. Supply chain, bingo, square, ta-da. That's the best I can do.
1: (laughs) congratulations you have one
0: um i
1: I know we've got a few so I want to keep it short on this i think when i saw this i didn't look at it too closely but my thought was um you know the way we always talk as an industry as um assume compromise Mm. um about our products or infrastructure i think it's becoming more and more of that when you go to the cloud unfortunately um some vendors are better than others it seems but at the same time uh you can you know play spin the orca bottle or spin the whiz bottle at any of these guys and (laughs) there seems like they're going to find something which is you know congrats to them that's amazing work but um for the rest of us i think we really need to think about okay i'm going into the cloud um pick a color how am i going to secure stuff that i'm doing in it like you really have to think through for each first step you're doing what what's what could happen how am i going to prevent that and how am i going to respond to it so that that's my two cents on that
0: Absolutely. And I think to wrap up real quick, I had one other article that was just a, a list of awesome industrial protocols, which um, goes really deep on bizarre areas. And I thought it was really fun because I do love reading about protocols. They could be fun things to take apart. Um, how so many of them might be really obscure and not really useful. But the WAN, if there's going to be one that you point out to, uh, WAN is probably good. And maybe Zigbee, if you want to pick two to read through. And uh, of those, read about those protocols, because the implementations could, time to go fuzz, find some vulns, and that could be related to some Tetraburst that you found there, John.
1: Um, yeah, Laura Wan is is slowly catching on. And Zigbee is too, Zigbee about, I used to be a Z-Wave guy. I thought Z-Wave was gonna take over the market, but Zigbee is slowly coming back. So yeah, lots of, of those. Um, Tetraburst is interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. We think this came, or I think this just got released today on Monday. Um, and, and what's going on here, folks, um, it, it's it's a, a, a good read once again, but at a really high, quick level for you. Um, this is a, um, a radio standard, which was used by um, both law enforcement, military, and critical infrastructure, um, not just in the U.S., but globally. So this is something that could be used for uh, controlling uh, oil and gas sites, um, water systems, so it's not just you know by default. Even when I saw this, I think radio, I think like two a you know breaker or whatever, come get me. I'm I need help in making this a story. Uh, but um, yeah, so it, this this is this thing which had been sort of kept behind closed doors and not really allowed people to access or play with it because like you know national security. Folks finally got their hands on it and they found not just a list of vulnerabilities, but the uh, system is actually backdoored. So. Um, yeah, and, and the, the the you know, as all good vulnerability families, this has a website which we've linked to with one, two, three, four, five different vulner- five different CVEs from uh, low to critical. Um, no, Mike, I don't know which um, uh, CVSS standard that's based on. They're all really great, but um, yeah. So, folks, go take a look at this. Um, uh, yeah, it, it 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 seems like we're getting some good stuff right now pre Black Hat, uh, but hopefully we'll get it some more in the next few weeks as well
0: will and uh time to start playing with some more software defined radio as well because i think we're hitting on a lot of that area so that 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 looks like at least make mr kinsella happy um but we also need to make our everyone happy and move on to the interview so i want to say a quick thanks to john quick thanks to everyone who's been listening so far we're going to take a quick break and return with this week's interview
2: Created in 2005 and hosted by security industry veterans, Paul Security Weekly is your source
0: for in-depth coverage of the latest vulnerabilities, exploits, and security research. Our weekly security news discussion dives deep into the security issues we face today and potential solutions in a fun and lively atmosphere. Each week we bring on guests from the security community to learn about their journey and discuss topics relevant to their work and research. You can also subscribe to our show by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe or look for Paul Security Weekly in your favorite podcast catcher. We've recorded a ton of content over the years, so we created Spotify playlists featuring some of our favorite episodes, including interviews with Marcus Random, John McAfee, and Chris Roberts, to name a few. You can find them at securityweekly.com forward slash starter packs. Developers have a need for speed to meet market demands, and application security needs to ensure that data and privacy constraints are met. Unfortunately, that can slow down delivery. So, is it even possible to deliver secure software quickly? Enter Secure Coding. Brought to you by GuidePoint Security's Application Security Services. Secure coding is more than a process, it's a cultural shift. One that will make it possible for both developers and AppSec to build in security while applications are being developed. Visit our AppSec resource hub to learn more at securityweekly.com guidepoint. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella. This segment is sponsored by GuidePoint. To learn more about GuidePoint security, visit securityweekly.com guidepoint. We've got one announcement real quick. Infosec World 2023 is heading back to Orlando, Florida. Join the Infosec community at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort, September 23rd to 28th. Experience world-class learning and networking through enlightening keynotes, informative panel discussions, interactive breakout sessions, hands-on workshops and summits, and more. As a Security Weekly community member, you're able to receive 20% off your Infosec World 2023 tickets using code ISW23-SECWEEK20. Register today at securityweekly.com slash infosecworld2023. Kristen is Director of Application Security Engineering at GuidePoint Security. Prior to that, Kristen consulted for numerous companies performing application security services. She has a background in the government sector, bringing application security programs and guidance in secure application design. Kristen's experience includes conducting application security assessments and database security reviews, secure SDLC consulting, as well as working with clients to improve their enterprise vulnerability management. Everybody needs that. Kristen is a strong champion for security with her ability to bridge the gap between technical and non-technical people, coupled with her strong interpersonal skills. Hello, Kristen. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Really appreciate being here.
0: Well, we're going to need you, we're going to need all those interpersonal skills as well as some of those application security skills to talk about, you know, securing APIs. And I think an angle here to talk about the consequences of decisions that AppSec teams make and developers make, especially in choosing tools, in deciding that, you know, this is what must be done before an API can go live, or what you know, what a secure API looks like, because There's a lot of ways that can go wrong. There's a lot of ways that we can not collaborate effectively. So I'm curious, you know, with with a little bit of that setup, I think you've been working on some research. A lot of this has been to your, your attention. What are some of those Hurdles, challenges, mistakes, and other synonyms that you've often seen AppSec and, and development teams run
2: into here? Well, sure. So, I mean, I think there's, there's it, it's a complex problem, right? So we have to kind of approach it from a variety of angles. Um, I think one of the things that's important to mention is that APIs and building APIs and using APIs is not new to development. They've been around for a very long time. Uh, most of the time, they were kind of more on the back end and, and sort of not not as public-facing. And um, I think people wanted the ability to reuse code and to interconnect systems, right, and to use master data instead of copying instances of data all over the place, which is all great. Uh, but that also has... And, and, Brought APIs, I think, to the forefront. Um, the way we assess them really hasn't changed. It's um, it's just how how much of them do we control, right? So we're we have to think about are we writing secure APIs. So we have to think about it coming from that perspective. But most organizations have data flowing through a lot of third-party APIs. So then the secondary question is, how do we support that? How do we support at our gateway level um, and, and secure those 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 things as well? The things that are sort of farther outside our control. And that's kind of where your question is going, right? Um, when we start looking at all these new technologies on the market, we th- th- there's there's they're all kind of trying to solve different problems and come at it from different angles. There's the discovery piece of most people don't know what they have, so let's go Mm -hmm. find it, right? And then there's the, how do we test or protect our data going through third-party APIs? And then how do we make sure that we're writing secure APIs? So where we're deploying these technologies and how we're deploying them impacts more than just the development teams and security teams. It might You know, impact the cloud teams or the server teams, infrastructure teams, those kinds of folks. That was a lot. And
0: and, and you, part of what you mentioned there too is that you know we're still securing APIs the same way we have been from the beginning. And there is, you know, there is the OWASP Top Ten that started off. There is actually an OWASP Top Ten for API security that's branched off, and uh, is a little bit of background. We tend to maybe not give a skeptical eye but maybe we we don't go deep into the oas top 10 lists so i'm curious what if we turning that comment into perhaps a value judgment is it still good that we're just still securing apis like we have been for the last 20 years is there something that we're missing that we should be doing better um tool-wise process-wise something like that
2: so I love the, the, the OWASP API top 10 from the standpoint that it does cover the basis, not just in the API security vulnerability, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Categories, um, but it also addresses design and architecture. So, um, so that's very good. And then OWASP also has some enhancements as far as how to go a step further. But to your point, yeah, we, we definitely, that's not going to solve all of the issues, especially because of those third-party APIs. And, um, you know, we're also seeing these new attacks, like the MoveIt attack, where people have been, these supply chains attacks, where, you know, that vendor that's using MoveIt, maybe three, three, three spots down or three endpoints down from where we really have control over our data and where our data is flowing. Um, so that's that's added complexity as well. And how do we approach those problems, those supply chain problems, right?
0: Well, Part of that supply chain problem, I think, starts off with, as you said at the beginning, like discovery, just what do you have? And obviously, I think that's a classic problem. So it's not too insightful for me to point that out. But is this maybe playing around on the tools side of the equation here, are people jumping in the wrong way with tools or with pen testing to say, oh, we've got to start looking for the cross-site scripting, the SQL injection? And they're skipping some better strategic approach to their an API security program. I think maybe that's what I'm trying to get at here.
2: A hundred percent. I mean, we have to, at a a high level, document and start doing things like threat modeling, Um, start looking for data flows, start looking at, you know, how those, where those trust boundaries are and and come at it from a programmatic approach. We have to enable developers to understand what are the issues that we're trying to prevent and, you know, what are some of the low hanging fruit? Like, we've always known that APIs were a treasure trove for detailed error. Messages, mostly because APIs are GUI right? So developers sort of left verbose error messages out there, not thinking about how easy it is to proxy that traffic. And, you know, and they also were trying to solve their own problem of while well, a user has an issue with an API, at least we can look at the error message and sort of drill down from there. But it still presents the same problem we've always faced with those things, you know, rendering in the browser as well, where we're giving information to an attacker. So yeah, 100%, we need to come at it from all the different perspectives. Like you say, discovery, getting a handle on what we know is out there, but we don't really know what it is or how many of them there are. But we, and we also, um, you know, developers as are, it's so important for developers to document. And yet that's always one of the biggest issues with development, right, is developers don't wanna document. So do we have good API documentation? And if not, we absolutely need to create it um, across the board somehow so that we can test. You know, It's hard to test APIs without the proper documentation around them, too.
0: Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit, because there's an aspect of like security awareness, security education, that we've also been telling developers, you should care about security, which I think they do. Um, but it also for just telling people write secure code for the last 20 years, maybe we haven't been doing security awareness right. And if talking about like documenting APIs, I think developers may push back, why should we be documenting our API for the AppSec team just to know that we checked a bunch of boxes? So my question more is what does a good API documentation look like? What 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 is that that is like? Respecting the time of the developers, that's making it useful, consumable, and informative, either for other developers or even just from that security standpoint.
2: Sure. So I think one of the things that we have always wanted, especially if we're doing like a manual pen test of an API, is well-formed HTTP request and response pairings, or some some level of documentation, whether it be Swagger, SOAP UI. We need to understand. What does a well-formed response look like? Because if you've worked in the API world, you've seen some weird well-formed responses, right? So we want to start out with what does good look like? And then we can start playing and manipulating with now we're going to start seeing if we can do bad things. Um, So that's extremely important. And I'll kind of liken it to this. When we are testing from that white hat or gray hat perspective, whether we're using tools and automating or whether we're doing a manual assessment, you know, it's the same sort of thing where we've been asking uh, uh, developers for test credentials, right, for web applications for years and years and years. I don't need to test your MFA. I don't need to necessarily test your authentication. I can tell you once you've given me test credentials, I can play around with that to tell you whether your authentication routines and functionality are secure. You don't wanna waste anybody's time, like the difference between ethical hackers and non-ethical hackers is a deadline, right? So whether we're automating with tools, whether we're using people in manual testing, the more information that we have, the better test you get at the end, the better results you get, because we're not wasting time trying to guess at what a valid parameter looks like, we actually know what a valid parameter is. And so now we can actually start seeing what can we do with that parameter to manipulate or to, you know, inject something or, or whatever it be, right?
0: Yes, starting off with more a, a more informed perspective of the application for the pen test is just more efficient and honestly it makes a, it makes the pen tester's life easier because they want to do the interesting things about how do these workflows particularly, you know, interact with each other? What are some edge cases rather than just figuring out how do I have to craft this HTTP request? So in that I think probably speaks to in a degree of maturity within an AppSec program to be able to, to have those kinds of conversations or to know that's what the conversation should start looking like. So, you know, we mentioned OWASP, maybe the OWASP SAM. Are there ways or there, what, what are the indicators for you that you're looking at a either a ground zero in an AppSec program or people are on their way to starting to do to do some smart things to begin to mature it?
2: so what we're looking for in an app program is a combination of things we want to see some governance it doesn't have to be nth level degree you know it has to be achievable initiatives that are in place policies that are in place that people can actually based on where they are in their learning curve where they are in their maturity level how how much they're testing you know we want achievable slas for developers to fix issues and those kinds of things so we're Looking at some some structure, we're also looking at the ability for them to have some sort of tools to test because it's hard to have an AFSEC program if all you're doing is manual pen tests or third-party pen test every once in a while, right? You have to have something that you're you're able to test in an ongoing fashion. And then we're looking at, you know, how how much of the portfolio is being tested, right? What kinds of testing are we doing? What's how how thorough is that? Are we just really looking at mission critical applications? And then based on those test results, are are the is that organization actively fixing? And what what does that look like? You know, are they leaving things out there forever? Are they only fixing the highs, but they have thousands or tens of thousands of mediums and lows, you know, those, those kinds of things are all going to come into play. And then how does the developer team and the security team communicate and, and what does that look like? Right? Because there has to be a pretty close relationship there to really, truly have an, a mature program. <laughs>
0: Part of that, too, is I think there's an aspect, you know, going back a little bit to the developer education security awareness, what does that look like within either, you know, the low maturity, you know, just getting started versus, you know, what, what a, a desirable end case, whether you've seen that in practice or not, I'm curious, what would you, what would you love to see as a security education program?
2: Sure. So I think education is the key to them. That's what a mature program looks like, right? We live in a world where most of the developers have, have not, unless they just have happened to be part of an organization with a mature appsec program, they have not been exposed to these concepts, um, more than likely. There's not an easy way for, you know, developers can't just go through their college curriculum and get this kind of information and education. So the the more we are teaching And the more these developers know, the more mature an AppSec program can be. So education, first and foremost, it's huge. Um, And we want to do that proactively. So I think from a program starting at zero, it's like, let's get out there and talk to people about this is basically what an appsec program looks like, and then we can start saying, okay, here's OWASP top ten, and we can get more granular from there. And as we see siloed development groups, and we start seeing test results from th- from them, we'll start to see trending vulnerabilities, and then we can start laser focusing that training to those specifics of, hey, you guys are introducing a lot of cross-site scripting. So over in this group, we need to target you all to understand how to better not do that.
0: You know, I think that's a common refrain we hear in the sense of here is something that's prevalent within the code that's relevant to the developers and, target those classes of vulns, like target cross-site scripting. Because I think, you know, you mentioned, I, I don't think it's uncommon necessary for large companies to have thousands of low and medium types of vulns, but I think I've come around to the idea that I kind of shrug and don't care about a lot of those thousands of low vulns. I think that's the way you would burn out a development team saying, our program is going to get to zero. Um So, how much of that is my desire versus you've actually seen in practice? Have you seen companies actually take that type of risk tolerance?
2: So we have, so we have to some degree. And what I say to some of that is there are some of that low hanging fruit is stuff that we can course correct, right? Like why are we returning platform information in an HTTP response? Like, why are we not, why are we looking at thousands of those in our dashboards? Why not just teach developers to not do that? Um, so I do have expectations of developers getting better at that. So we're just not increasing our technical debt, but I hear you. Um, I do, think that there's a flip side of that equation though. There are some medium vulnerabilities that on their own are pretty innocuous, but when combined together, they make a perfect storm and can decimate the security posture of an application. So what we recommend is there needs to be some analysis, right? There needs to be some sort of human being that's going in there to really say, Okay, do we care about these things? Can we table them? Or are there some of these things that we really should address because of the nature of how they could come together and produce a a really, you know, a high or a critical?
1: Yeah, I think- One one of the interesting things about that, Kristen, um, I'm I'm looking at it from what manager, engineering manager had on. One, um, I can go and educate my, my team to- a team to, um, you know, not put the, the server info into the, the um, info page, but is that worth the time of me actually teaching them? And I, I get both sides of that, but sort of on the second one, if I've got, as we're saying, 10,000 of these, um, say an info level or even a medium level issue, it's the thing is, it's very, it's not that much of a, it's worth the time of investment as well as it's worth um um, there's not that many of them to do the triage on the say 500 or hopefully not a thousand criticals, but how do you make that argument of just spending the time to triage through that list you just mentioned to figure out where do I where do I actually want to say yes or no? I mean that by itself takes time.
2: Yeah, so we're targeting things. Um, so, we, so we know that there's a boatload of things that we can kind of ignore, right? Um, and, and, and to your point of the things that we sort of want to teach them to do better. So like platform returned an HTTP response is a perfect example of that. We're starting to see less version information. We're starting to see more kind of, and I don't care as much about, you know, the fact that it's using an ASP.NET server, but if I can get all the version information and it's out outdated, that's a whole nother set of issues, right? So there are some ways that we can go through and toss a lot of that to the side. There, as far as your question as an infosec manager from that perspective, and is it worth the time to teach? I think it is And what we're doing um, is using things like the security champions program as a vehicle. And by that, I mean not to train, but to work with developers side-by-side to define some core baseline secure coding requirements. So the way that we're doing that is we're saying, okay, Mr. Customer, we're going to mix in some coding requirements that will code against cross-site scripting, right? Your big ticket item. But we're also gonna include some things that are like, if you have a sensitive cookie, these are the configuration, the, you know, these are the key configuration objectives that you have to have. And these are the four requirements around a sensitive cookie, right? The first time that developer sees that requirement, there, there may be some learning curve where they're like, hmm, don't really know how to do that, never done that before. They may have to figure it out. Second time they see that requirement, they're gonna be like, I did this before, let me just go back and check my notes. The third, the fourth time, they look at that requirement, they're like, I got this, I know what I'm doing. And so through creating some, again, achievable requirements, over time, we can change the course of that organization's existence and the maturity of their appsec program, because we can build upon that and we can put it places to where new developers get onboarded. And part of it is here are your secure coding requirement, application security perspective requirements. Do you understand this? And if so, sign off on it and we'll review it again in a year. Just like their HR onboarding or anything else, acceptable use policies and those kinds of things. So I hopefully that helps.
0: Yeah, I, I I like that aspect of a starting it as a more prescriptive, secure coding. Here's what to to do because that f- always feels more actionable. Developers can understand this is how, this is the design pattern we want to follow. These are design decisions we want to make, rather than don't write insecure code, right. which is a bit open ended, unbounded problem, if you will. Part of that though, th- there's still an aspect of that that triage that is you know that can be time consuming and uh, all you know. I hear that, and personally, I'm like, uh, I'm definitely not going to raise my. hand. I'm going to have to be voluntold to to do that work because that it doesn't scale. It's not fun, and honestly, you know, a little bit of joking aside, it's also a great way to burn someone out to just looking at yet another medium, yet another medium. Are there shortcuts? Are there kind of some heuristics that you have for making, uh, you know? effective triage you're trying to trying to avoid that burnout in doing that sort of triage
2: sure so typically when we're talking at that kind of level where you you've got thousands of things to look at um, what we're doing we're doing it we're pushing it down the road we're not doing it immediately if if somebody has tens of thousands of lows they've had hundreds and you know probably maybe even thousands of criticals and highs to work through right so we're working through all of those And that's also giving those developers a chance to learn. We can be educating them in the process, starting to build out some of those core requirements and starting to give them some of that, but we don't even talk to them about those mediums and lows till later. And by the time we start having those conversations, and we have a large organization doing that right now, right? They've been, they've had their SAS, DAST, SCA and some training modules for a while. They've worked through a boatload of their critical and highs. They're to the point where now that new ones are coming in, the developers have worked through the backlogs so they get it. So that education factor is, again, that learning curve is a lot more flat than it was. And so now we're starting to pivot and say, okay, as part of our house cleaning, we've got this. We're we're good on the highs and criticals. Now we're going to start facing this boatload of other things. And um, they're not trying to bite off, you know, they're not trying to eat the elephant all at once. They're trying to, you know, take it in chunks, right? So, um, and, and it's working. And I think the developers now from a from an organizational culture perspective, they're in a different place than they were when they started out this program. So the fact, the burnout factor's not as great, right? And we're gonna target like, what are the mediums around authentication, right? do we have okay. lack of account lockouts cuz th- those we want to shore up do we have weaker passwords you know those are all kinds of it. those are in medium land but they're things that we want to definitely address before other things so we start looking at you know the from that perspective right and then it's it's still meaningful
0: yeah let, so let's bring medium land together with John's manager land um <laughs> because you know he's trying to figure out you know do i how do i spend my time my developers time or you know developer on these teams and we let's say we've spent the time now we've spent the money so the cfo comes knocking on john's door as well how do we you know give some indicators that we're we're better we we are more secure we're less risky we can phrase that in a couple different ways but i'm getting to the idea that you know infosec still struggles with metrics what are, what are some ways that you look at here
2: it's- it's for, it's, it, and this is for me?
0: Yes. <laughs> I just sure. We could put John You're on the, the spot, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. No, I just want to make sure. So um, no, I, yeah, 100%. So we want to look at, I like to get mature with metrics over time and do baby steps with that as well. So we we want to show ROI through, this is how many we issues we've closed to date. You know, this is how many issues we're closing as false positives to see as as a decline in that, because hopefully we're we're setting certain things and getting them out of our way so we don't see them over and over and over again. Um, How much of our portfolio, that percentage of code, of all the code that we have, are we actually testing? Um, You know, how long are vulnerabilities living from the time that they're validated until the time that they go down. Um, And then, you know, what is the rate of fixing new vulnerabilities coming in? All of those things paint a picture. You're right. From when you start getting flatter, because you've fixed all those criticals and highs, the ROI, we have to show it in other ways. Because at that point, Are we really testing everything we've got? Or do we want to table the mediums and lows and make sure that we're not identifying more highs and criticals in by continuing to test more of our code base? And the rate of reintroduction too, that's a big thing we want Mm -hmm. to do. um, And then as you mature in your organization, you want to start pushing some of this into the QA program, and you know we we talk about the whole requirements-driven testing domain that's now in OWASP. SAM. Well, what that's really referring to, in some senses, in some organizations, is pushing some of that testing into QA, into their automated approach for regression testing. So it's it's that other we we've, we've always talked about treating vulnerabilities as bugs to get buy-in from developers. Well, now let's. Talk about treating the reintroduction of vulnerabilities as bugs, too, and push that into the QA world where we're automating and doing regression testing um, to make sure that we're not reintroducing. So there's some ways that as organizations, you know, they can further mature themselves with that ROI and those metrics as well
0: one uh, along that theme too we've been talking about for example tools mm-hmm. and um, there are for example plenty of open source tools freely available tools but those can have overhead you know it takes time to use and so once again it comes that idea of like from, from, a, from in manager land somebody needs to curate them maintain them there there's overhead even though the the price is free have you seen you know what what are do you have some guidance there in the sense of mistakes to avoid in adopting open source or ways to emphasize using some open source that's actually more helpful, more effective?
2: So in today's offset world, I truly feel like you get what you pay for, right? So, and I do think to that end, that People have very sacred, their budget dollars are sacred, right? They have, they only, they're very finite and they have to spend them and get the most bang for the buck as possible. So there is this notion that people are sacrificing some quality over price to, to be able to assure that they have a full set of tools. And I don't think there's a problem with that because some of there is overlap across the different tools. I do think that you need to have some robust. I don't think you can do everything on open source tools. And I think you have to be careful. Open source tools are, you know, supported by the community. They can go unmaintained. They can go sort of left out there. And we've seen that over time. Um it, it's, it's a hard conversation to have. It really... But if you really need and you really want true AppSec, I don't suggest open source tools. If you have strict regulatory compliance or, you know, don't want to end up on the face of the paper, um, or if you have a very immature development organization from a security skill set perspective, I highly recommend spending that investment to get things A, tested robustly and B, getting those developers educated. It's super important.
0: Going to come back on the that's interesting. I'll I'll say surprising to me a bit about um, you know the the open source because they have you know we there are different types of organizations out there too, different types of budgets and maturity. Mm -hmm. So speaking of differences as well, there was also the idea of uh, like throwing over to QA. I haven't seen it's been probably ten or fifteen years since I personally worked in an org that had actually a dedicated QA. Um, type to it now. A lot of developers are QAing their own code. I'm curious. You, you mentioned too. There's the automation, automated regression tests. Do you see QA often as kind of a distinct counterpart? Or is that really just more of the the the, the responsibility that is still that DevOps team, Agile team, what, what have you?
2: Most of what I'm seeing. Um, is that there are QA teams, um, and most of them in the last that I in the organizations that I've talked to and worked with in the last, let's say, two years have had a lot of QA teams that are really more manually still testing, trying to move to more automation. Um, because these are, in many cases, larger organizations with larger development teams. So, um, so they're either partially into and have a hybrid model where they're still doing some regression testing manually and, and then have some automation that they're building out, or they're still in that manual phase driving towards the automation. But yeah, we, we're we still seeing a lot of QA teams. So that's interesting because um, that you're seeing something different.
0: Yeah, and the industry is big, so that's you know there there lots of developers love to uh, and organizations I should say love to organize in many different ways, and maybe there is an element of maturity there. Also, industry slices, so we'll have to look at. Uh, I, I don't know who's developing the latest you know state of security or state of X reports. But uh, they tend to slice up uh, industry and, and, and metrics like that. We'll have to check that out. One of the other things that we do like to to talk about and, and ask our guests is describing AppSec in three words. And one of the reasons I like to do this, and maybe we will start starting switching this to the beginning of the interview, is just getting a sense of how do people see AppSec, and um, you know what does. And I'm not trying to to. Um, Build this up too much, or pin it down to this is the only way to see AppSec in three words. But it's often illuminating because we've gotten a lot of creative and very different types of responses. So, with that long preamble, that hopefully gave you a little bit of time just to to make sure you thought through your your, your response, give you give you a little prep there. Uh, what would be your AppSec in three words?
2: I would say it's complex. Uh, it's extremely diverse. Kind of have to know a lot of things across the spectrum to manage it, um, and it's ever changing. You know, it's very fluid. Maybe "fluid" is a better word because ever changing, technically, I guess, is too with a hyphen. But
0: I um, can throw a hyphen. In
2: <laughs> you know, it it, you, it keeps you on your toes. I you know I've been doing it for over eighteen years, and I, it, there's never a dull moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, and I think, and what, what's interesting is that um yeah, I, I love that idea. Um, you know, I love that response, and it's funny to hear the complexity and the fluidity, or the ever-changing. But we're still stuck on, like you had mentioned, cross-site scripting. I'd mentioned SQL injection. There still seems a lot of things that um, are ever not changing to create a two a single two hyphenated word.
2: <laughs> that's a hundred percent true, right? And, and part of the reason why that is is because organizations that have been around for as as long as some of these applications have been around, they're supporting, you know. Classic ASP.net. They're supporting legacy applications, but they're also supporting cloud native applications, right? And everything in between. Um, so we have to have an AppSec program that works for all of those people, all of those different methodologies and all of those different technologies. And I think that's why. We still have to have that working knowledge of what we knew to, and we're talking about 20 years ago, as well as all the things that we're talking about now with the, all the supply chain attacks and the third party component attack, you know, all of those different things that we never had to even think about because they just they weren't even something that was in our world or in our um uh I don't know, on our, on our uh, greater-
0: on our top 10 lists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, I think we, we did a new segment before this. And one of the, the articles that I actually didn't mention was cold fusion. So there's a new cold fusion critical volume. And I like ASP.net cold fusion is another name that I've not heard in a long time
2: uh, to, to
0: sort of here. quote Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes, exactly. But um, rather than looking 20 years back, Kristen, help us look maybe 20, maybe a bit longer than 20 minutes ahead, but maybe 20 months ahead. What, what, what's coming up that you'd like to uh, draw draw listeners' attention to?
2: Well, I think the, the open source discussion, right? I, I still run across folks who are unfamiliar with software composition analysis. Now we're even getting beyond software composition analysis and talking about, well, what about all of the um, the the own tools, not the open source tools, but some of the other, you know, tools that people are using in libraries and dependencies that are being, you know, widespread. Um, because I think it's a great attack surface for attackers. Rather than me go after your application and your users, now all I need to find is some flaw in something that everybody uses across the globe that hasn't been maintained or touched in two years. And there's, you know, there was a report that came out not long ago that said literally like it was something like 40% of all of the open source components that are widely used have not been touched by any developer in over two years. So they're all over the place out there. Um, and we're just con- continuing to see them to, to emerge. Um, and we're seeing organizations, you know, Log4j gave us a perfect um, example where organizations weren't identifying that issue at its root cause as an AppSec issue, and they still haven't found instances of it in their environment. So they're still getting popped. I mean, I confirmed that with our DFIR team. And they said, yeah, we're seeing it all the time. So that's gonna continue to be hugely problematic and a hard problem to solve.
0: Yeah, I think that goes down to the idea of just discovery, what's on your network, open source or otherwise. And it's good to see that, you know, organizations like openssf.org have been putting that money into looking at what are the top 500 apps out there, top 500 use uh, packages and securing them, putting some, honestly, some money and budget behind that work. Um, we've also put a lot of, uh, not money, I suppose we have put a lot of time into this conversation, Kristen, and we're running out. Our, our budget has come to the end, but I do want to say thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Sorry. I stuttered a few times in there, but, uh, <laughs> it's been wonderful.
0: I think it'll. I'll be seamless when it goes out to, to go goes out to the recording. Thank you again for your patience. Uh, thanks again to John. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. Please do subscribe, hit that like button, check out the show notes. And speaking of things that are fabulous, like Barbie, check out Stardust by Parallels. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly.